Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, an emergency meeting has been called by the opposition seeking further testimony from Jody Wilson-Raybould in the SNC-Lavalin affair. NDP MPPs have issued a letter to Hamilton City Council requesting a judicial inquiry into the Red Hill Valley Parkway, and Paul Manafort was sentenced to 47 months for defrauding the banks, government, and failing to pay his taxes. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Of course, the uh, brouhaha about what's happening in Ottawa with the uh, SNC-Lavalin situation and, of course, the Prime Minister and uh, others, of course, involved in the, the melodrama up there continues. Uh, yesterday, of course, as we told you, the Prime Minister made a statement that he said essentially what Gerald Butts had mentioned uh, the day before that with his testimony before that Judicial Committee that, uh, look, it, people can see things differently at the same meeting. And and, and that seems to be uh, the, pretty much the message that's, uh, that's coming out of the Prime Minister's office right now. But there are still rumblings about discontent within the Liberal caucus. And uh, I guess the biggest question now is, what's going to happen next? Uh, will this continue? Well, emergency meeting has been asked for now by the opposition members of that committee because they want to hear from Jody Wilson-Raybolt once again. I'm not so sure that's going to happen anytime soon. Joining us to talk about all this is Peter Gray, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Peter, how are you doing today? Great, thanks. Good. Good to have you with us today. Uh, give, give me your read. You've been watching this uh, evolve for over the last three or four weeks right now. What's, uh, what's your sense of what's going on and where we're going with this? Uh, well, I mean, it seems to be something uh, which just won't go away. Uh, in that, uh, you know, the Prime Minister and the people around him have tried many different strategies to try and 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 hide or not speak to the question of whether there was an improper influence on the attorney general and so uh yeah, it doesn't seem like the opposition is going to give it up i suspect that when the federal budget is presented in a couple of weeks time uh people's attention will begin to shift but in the interim i think people continue to ask the question about you know whether there's a fairly clear uh, rule about uh, the people not interfering uh, politically in the the role of the attorney general and uh, Clearly, the, the, uh, there's questions about whether the, the Liberal government, in fact, broke that uh, line. And in a way, Trudeau's refusal to really admit that or speak to it in some ways with time begins to make people ask more profound questions about whether following the rules is important to this government. Is, is it plausible? Because the, the, the explanation we got from the Prime Minister yesterday, as I mentioned just a second ago, was pretty much the same thing Jerry Butt said, and the same thing the clerk of the Privy Council seemed to say, is that, look, this is business as usual. This is how you, you do politics. And it was misinterpreted. Uh, it just, this was just a bad, bad mistake. And uh, you talked about an erosion of trust, but it seems as if they're saying, no, look, this happened, but it happens all the time. And I don't know why she's getting upset about it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's sort of two lines there. One is, uh, yeah, this is just uh, the normal uh, state of play, and uh, in that, uh, it's a bit disingenuous because even in their own discussions, they realize that the attorney general had a different role than the other members of cabinet and the kinds of forms of pressure that are normal uh, in modern cabinets. Uh, nevertheless, don't apply to attorney generals who are meant to have that independence in making prosecutorial decisions. Uh, uh, you know, the other line is ultimately, well, this is just, uh, you know, people not understanding each other, and there was a miscommunication, and uh, she thought one thing, but I meant another. Uh, you know, again, I think that's that's muddying the waters, that uh, clearly she had made a decision about uh, not to go forward with uh, this uh, uh, special agreement with SNC-Lavalin, and uh, they refused to accept that and continue to put pressure on her. Um, and, you know, whether she saw it as, like, uh, as, as strong as she did or it was as weak as they did, the fact was they were continuing uh, to try and second-guess her opinion or try to convince her uh, to change it by getting external legal advice and so forth. 
which uh, the new attorney general now seems to be following uh, that, that line of thought anyway to go and get outside opinions on this. Uh, but but that's the characterization, I guess, we've seen from an awful lot of people uh, over the last couple of weeks, especially, Peter, since they've seemingly uh, moved in this direction to say, look, this is all just a misunderstanding, is that uh, if, had she come forward earlier that this thing never would have blown up the way that it did. Is that is that plausible? Uh well, I mean, I think if, you know, from the beginning, Trudeau had, uh, you know, uh, put together some of the arguments he's put subsequently, like, well, this is all about saving jobs. If on the first day before people were really paying much attention, he said, this is all about jobs, uh, you know, I, I pushed hard for them. I, I probably went further than I should have. Uh, but ultimately, no harm was done because, uh, you know, Ray Bull did her job and refused to be, you know, to uh, accept political pressure. Uh, probably, uh, you know, it would have been a two-day wonder. Uh, but in not uh, responding in a sort of honest and forthright manner uh, from the get-go, then people begin to say, well, wait a second, actually this is pretty serious uh, when we have members of the political executive getting involved in prosecutions. Uh, you know, we, we have examples like, you know, Duplessis-Roncarelli affair in the 1950s was an important moment where we said, no, uh, the political executive, the prime minister and cabinet should not be uh, determining uh, what gets prosecuted and not. Uh, they should not be intervening in these specific cases to uh, reward friends or punish enemies. Um, and so I think that's why uh, in not having a clear answer in trying to hide things or, you know, uh, lead us to think about other issues, uh, we've had more time to think about the seriousness of what happened, uh, you know, at least from the level of the principle that was broken. Uh, it was maybe not the, the worst breaking of that principle we've seen in, in Canadian political history, but uh, again, the, the unwillingness to admit that they were breaking a principle, that when faced with the pressure of a large company and the rule of law, they, they bent the rule of law to, to make it fit. Uh, in, in not admitting those questions, uh, I think it just raises more issues about, well, can they be trusted uh, in the longer sense? Uh, if you can't admit wrongdoing, uh, can you be uh, trusted in other situations? When are politicians going to get that message, Peter? And I, I, obviously, we can apply that line of thinking to what's going on right now with the, this uh, this uh, whole fiasco. But uh, every time something like this happens, it, the message always seems to be: look at, admit it, own it right away, and apologize for it. And it does set, tend to go away pretty quickly, depending on the magnitude of of what has happened here. But time and time again, we see governments ignoring that advice, and now they get they find themselves in this quagmire. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess, you know, the two extremes perhaps work best in terms of admission. Uh, or we've had politicians in recent years who just seem to ignore things and keep going. Uh, and actually, they pay uh, a smaller price. And we maybe should be concerned about that as well if we look south of the border, where it seems like you can lie with impunity as a president. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, I mean, there are, there are uh, some, you know, problems with uh, the alternative approach. It seems that in the middle that you pay the, the largest price. Uh, you know, but even there, uh, you can understand why politicians don't do that, because there is a certain gotcha culture uh, on the part of how politics is reported. Uh, the opposition is looking to scream a scandal and mistake, and so if you admit your own, it's kind of seen as scoring an own goal. Um, but it's true. It, uh, if ultimately, I think, I think the, the public can see through mistakes, and they can understand mistakes if they can see something genuine underneath. And part of the problem for Trudeau in this case is that I think we've observed someone who we don't really know what he believes in. He's provided us many different explanations, uh, many of which are plausible, but the fact that they change from day to day, we begin to say, well, where's the bottom in terms of Trudeau? Where's the bedrock from which he's making these decisions? Or is it, in fact, a kind of a lot of flim-flam of getting by day to day without there being a real central core to what Trudeau is and what he stands for? 
I guess to use one of the, the political phrases, does this does this whole thing have legs? Is it going to last any longer? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, that the, the budget's coming up on the, uh, I guess it's the 18th or 19th, a couple of days, well, 10 days from now anyway. Uh, does that turn the page uh, as far as, as the government's concerned? Or I guess they'd like it to, but will it? Yeah, I think it will in part. I mean, you know, this will linger around uh, as long as the you know the question of what you do with SNC Lavalin uh, lingers around, which it will for a while. Uh, you know, the, this will return, but I don't think as centrally. Uh, I think we saw with the provincial liberals uh, under uh, you know Wynne and McGinty and the question of the gas plants. I mean, things that are very shocking can happen, uh, but then people price them into their calculations. At the moment, they're really just thinking about Trudeau and his government. In a few months, they'll be thinking about Trudeau against Mr. Sheer and Mr. Singh, and uh, you know, in that context, they probably uh, think a bit differently about. Okay, this tells us something about Trudeau, but it's not all that his government is about. And you know, we also have to think that way about Sheer and Mr. Sheer and Mr. Singh. So, uh, in that way, uh, you know, we'll have it will have legs, but uh, diminishing ones. It will affect how people think about the parties come the fall, but it won't be the only thing they're thinking about. What about the impact this is going to have on the public? I mean, you can pick up a newspaper, listen to a talk show like this, or anybody else anywhere on the dial or anyplace else, and and of course there's all sorts of discussion about this on both sides of this issue. Uh, but are the general public buying into this right now? Because we tend to think that the public doesn't really look at uh, the inside baseball stuff when it comes to this. Uh, a lot of the time, they're just not paying much attention to it. But they seem to be paying attention to this one. At least that's the impression you get from what we're hearing from the pundits, anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the sort of the core question of the role of the Attorney General, uh, I think the Liberals have been successful in, in muddying that, and maybe people aren't capturing that. Um, but, you know, people, I think, are looking for a reason uh, to either uh, stick with the Trudeau government or maybe explore an alternative in the fall, and this provides them a real moment uh, to think about that and to come up with maybe not the best reasons, but some reason why they're, you know, either not voting or voting for Trudeau come the fall. So. I think it, it plays that kind of role. The idea that uh, the prime minister's office would be kind of a yo-yo, uh, being you know take, taken up and down by a private firm, uh, may be shocking to some, but to many others, it's probably consistent with a sort of cynical view of politics, where you know business calls the shots. Uh, you know, again, there this will you know not uh, not surprise a lot of people, or only mildly surprise them, but uh, probably does make them consider: do they want to? Uh, continue with a government that seems a bit cozy, uh, or whether they're going to look to an opposition party. I guess the ultimate question here then is: Is it going to change people's votes? I mean, with the election coming up in October, uh, clearly I, I, you can tell from some of the opinions that are being expressed these days. I mean, if you hate the Liberals and hate Trudeau, this is this is this is great for you. I mean, you're just loving this; you're eating it up. Uh, but for the people that did vote it for the Liberals the last time, is this going to make them think, well, maybe maybe i got to look someplace else? I mean, yeah, that's that's a pretty big move to actually say, okay, I'm shifting party allegiance now because of this. Yeah, I might think of it more as kind of like termites in your house. <laughs> you know, the house looks the same, but it's a bit weakened. Uh, and so, I mean, I presume in the next election, uh, Trudeau will try to repeat what he did in 2015, which is to say to NDP, potential NDP and Green Party voters, uh, uh, the Conservatives are, are much worse than me. I'm the, I'm the voice of progress. You'd better vote for me. Uh, and I think his capacity to do that will be somewhat weakened by uh, the scandal and particularly this, you know, the willingness to uh, bend principle to uh, solve a problem for SNC-Lavalin. Uh, so in that context, I think it does make it a bit harder for the Liberals in the next election. Um, but, you know, there's other ways that they can persuade Canadians. And you can see that you know, they're, they're now suddenly pushing forward a bit more quickly with the question of pharmacare, for instance. 
uh, putting much more emphasis on the climate change uh, question. I mean, both probably tied to what was coming in the budget anyway, but I think they realized that uh, winning those votes away from the uh, Greens and the NDP like they did in 2015 uh, will require perhaps a bit more of a charm offensive than it would have otherwise. And, and again, from that whole concept of changing the channel, I mean, the fact is time is, is maybe the biggest enemy of people that want to keep the fires burning on this whole controversy. Uh, my understanding is the, con- the Judicial Committee isn't even going to meet for another 10 days, uh, which would probably cool everybody's jets just a little bit, although there is a move now to get uh, Ms. Wilson-Murraybould back in front of the committee. Uh, I, I'm not so sure if the Liberals on the committee are going to allow that to happen, but uh, that, that certainly would, I, I guess, give the opposition parties more chance to come after her. She... She's a, a, an enigma in this whole thing, isn't she, really, Peter? I mean, she says she still wants to be a liberal. She still wants to stay in caucus. She wants to run in the next election as a liberal. But she's not doing the prime minister any favors. No, I mean, it's, uh, we're so used in Canada to having such highly disciplined parties that uh, this kind of behavior, which we might find not so strange if we were looking at uh, Westminster in Britain, uh, does seem strange to us. Uh, but, you know, it's quite consistent with the idea that one can support a party uh, but nevertheless be uh, vaguely critical of a government uh, that's drawn from that party, that that the private members of a party uh, don't necessarily have to be trained SEALs. Uh, you know, they're expected to vote and show confidence in the government to keep it going, but, you know, beyond that, they have some space to uh, raise questions about uh, what that government is doing. And so in that context, uh, her behavior seems strange to us, and, in, you know, even in a kind of British situation, the extent to which former cabinet minister takes open... Uh, well, maybe swipes is too hard, but it you know, openly questions uh, the truthfulness of the, the statements of the prime minister and those close to the prime minister, you know, is pushing it, but it's probably not at the range where you'd be seeing people expelled from caucus. Um, but again, you know, that's, it's a difference in traditions. In the Canadian case, the prime minister has to sign a candidate's nomination papers, or the party leader has to sign a candidate's nomination papers, and that gives them a lot of power over, over dissidents. Uh, you know, as compared to, say, in Britain, where you'd have the local riding association having the right to choose a candidate. And in that kind of case, I'm sure that uh, Wilson-Raybould is quite popular with her uh, constituents and mm-hmm. her, her local association. Used to be that way, though, wasn't it? I mean, we, we seem to have morphed into this whole thing right now where, uh, and I guess that's one of the big complaints about the way the system works right now, that especially backbench MPs are basically told to, you know, be trained SEALs. You know, you vote when I tell you to vote, vote how I tell you to vote, etc. And they don't really have much of a voice now. And that's it's kind of unusual to see somebody actually go back to those days and say, this is the way I want to represent my constituents. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, some of it is the power of the, the prime, uh, of party leaders to sign papers, but, uh, you know, some of it, too, is uh, a lot of members of parliament, uh, particularly since we have a relatively small parliament compared to the size of cabinet. Uh, uh, most people feel that towing the party line will be good for their careers and their upward mobility, and uh, obviously, you know, pleasing the leader is, makes them more likely to be appointed to cabinet or to be a parliamentary secretary or to be a caucus chair or to get some other position that has a, you know, a slight salary bump and also a greater kind of profile and respect to it. So, uh, yeah, there's, a, there's both the rules, but then also maybe members of parliament who are unwilling to, you know, shake. Uh, you know, I mean, I guess we see it kind of at our local city council, too. I mean, people get elected and they want to get reelected, and it does create a certain risk aversion uh, in terms of maybe standing up occasionally uh, and uh, taking a, a view other than that of your colleagues. Peter, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. You're welcome. Peter Gray, of course, uh, from McMaster University in the Poli Sci Department. Uh, back after the break, the Bill Kelly Show continues here on 900 CHML. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, controversy about the Red Hills uh, continuing now. Our city council, of course, is waiting to get some information from uh, city staff about how to proceed. Uh, they are going to do some repairs on this. We do know that. And uh, Hamilton Police Services have chimed in as well. As, as uh, you've heard on CHML News this morning, uh, they're going to be increasing patrols there. We'll uh, try to get some ideas to exactly how that's going to round out in uh, just a couple of seconds. Uh, but the uh, local members of the NDP MPPs uh, have sent a letter to uh, the government, uh, actually, and to the city, uh, suggesting the judicial inquiry move forward on this. Now, we've been talking about this for quite some time. The city has not really uh, made that commitment yet. They say there should be some sort of an investigation. And this all has to do, of course, with that report that was never released to the uh, to the council or to the public, for that matter, that uh, had raised some serious concerns about traction on that road. And uh, the, the judicial inquiry, to me and to an awful lot of other people, makes all kinds of sense. Uh, yesterday uh, on the Scott Thompson Show here on CHML, NDP leader Andrea Horvath uh, explained it this way. Well, the impetus of the letter came uh, after uh, the families of two young women who lost their lives on the, uh, on the Red Hill Valley Expressway or the Red Hill Creek Expressway were um, reached out to me, and uh, they asked to have a meeting. Uh, and so I, I met with the families, uh, inviting the other MPPs because, of course, the you know the breadth and length of the both the link, as you talked about, and the expressway, uh, it, it travels the length of our city. So um, the MPPs and I met with the two families, and and just hearing their their stories and hearing their um, you know their 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 fight, frankly, to try to get things like medians and other um, other you know changes made to make the roadway more safe. Uh, it, it, it led us to believe that um, you know the whole issue about uh, the you know the whole discussion about the safety over the last number of years, uh, culminating in that bombshell you know discovery that the, there had been a report that was buried and and just the, the you know the sense around uh, Hamilton when I talked to folks, it just became clear that, that people want you know a very um, cleansing light shone on all of these issues and the best way to get at that and maintain the confidence of the public is to have a completely unbiased uh, independent review by a, a respected person that can, you know, that can uh, subpoena uh, documents and that can compel witnesses, and, and that's, I think, exactly what's necessary here. Andrea P. Leader Andrea Horvath, of course, uh, commenting uh, yesterday here on CHML about what her and her uh, NDP colleagues wanted to see the city do forward on. But there is a provincial angle to this as well that uh, at least one councillor is talking about, and I think justifiably so, too, and that being Ward 4 Councillor Sam Marula, who joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on this. Sam, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Oh, my pleasure, Bill. Listen, you, you mentioned this at one of the meetings, uh, I guess, a week or two ago, when we were talking about culpability here, and obviously there's some concerns about why that staff report was never released, and, and you guys are obviously going to make some determinations about how to investigate that. But you pointed the right. finger at Queen's Park as well, Sam, and said, look, they had some information that they didn't release, too. That's correct. So just to be clear, council is committed to a third-party independent investigation. The narrative to suggest that people need to lobby us for that is really um, really misleading. Nobody on council uh, has, not, has not said that we need a third-party independent investigation. The question becomes, if you're going to spend six, up to $6 million, you need to follow due diligence, and that's exactly what council is doing. So a, when I was first brought to my attention, I asked for a public inquiry, a police investigation. All of council concurred, uh, but then everyone put, held their horses and said, listen, 
we need to know what it means, what the scope is, what the costs are. And we took a step back, hired an independent third-party person to put that scope, to put the entire plan together. Now, this whole narrative that we that people need to start this campaign to, to have council do this is just false. In, in many ways, it's actually misleading and almost embarrassing. Council is committed, and we will continue to be committed to getting to the bottom of this. Now, when you look at the entire scenario, what occurred was, throughout the uh, since the, 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 build, the road opened up in 2007, there was anecdotal information given to council and to councillors, and as a direct result, we instructed, council instructed council, uh, staff to investigate all safety issues related to the road. It was concluded by staff that the issue is more related to perception than reality. We then didn't take that as an answer. We, as a council and as councillors, myself and Council Collins and Jackson particularly, continued pounding on this issue, saying we need more information, we need more studies. Throughout this process, they kept reporting back that it was either inconclusive or everything is just based on perception. Now, one thing that's for certain, if the road is unsafe, we would have closed it. It's not unsafe. There, if the road is used as prescribed, then everything's fine. However, what has been found is that the geometry of the road and speed, in combination with it being wet, contributes to an increase of collision. Does that mean that the friction in itself contributes to it? No. What it means is that when this report came up as part of a, great, a bigger uh, study, is that friction is one of those variables that is looked upon as a contributing factor. That report, which was buried, or was for whatever reason not revealed, should have led to a further reports and further studies. It doesn't mean that it's a bombshell in the sense that, wow, smoking gun, this report is the reason why these accidents occurred. Nonsense. What it means is that we should have known and we should have been instructed and, and determined whether or not we move forward with further studies. Now, keep in mind, between 2007 and 14. The MTO were conducting their own studies. Their raw data was identical to this so-called alleged bombshell that that uh, Gary Moore had that wasn't revealed to us. But then the, that begs the question, why didn't the MTO, if, had, if they had the same raw data, which they admit and everyone concurs with, why didn't they um, say, my God, close down the road, this road's dangerous? Because it isn't. It's just one variable out of many. And, 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 and the, the fact that the MTO and their engineers and our engineer both concurred that it wasn't significant enough to close down the road means it's not significant enough to make the road dangerous. However, we should have known. So we are asking for a full public inquiry. Nobody is denying that we need one. And this is not an issue regarding the technical aspect, because right now we have a lot of armchair engineers. This language, even if we would have gotten this report and released it as a press release, nobody would understand it. It's engineering, technical language. We need professionals to interpret that technical language, to find conclusions, to present to us for future studies. So, again, we need to put this nonsense in perspective. As important as this is, we need to clear the air. And that public inquiry 
and any future investigations needs to occur. Not because I believe that the road is dangerous, but just to clear the air, because we have this narrative that's been created, created in some circles that are just basically fake news. Okay, but are you, are you downplaying the, the concerns about friction on the road then? <laughs> no, what I'm saying is, I'm not downplaying. I think the public inquiry will conclude all of it, and we, it should be open and transparent. What I'm saying to you is, if it's a series of some people are claiming it to be, then why did all these engineers at the MTO and our engineers and even third-party engineers have said it wasn't significant enough to close down the road? So I'm not downplaying it. I'm just telling you what the facts are, and the facts are quite clear. Every single professional engineer that's evaluated it didn't evaluate and conclude that the road should be closed. They evaluated and concluded that it's either inconclusive or future studies should occur. That's not bombshells. That basically is technical engineering a language to me to suggest that future studies should have occurred. But I'll tell you, even when we were told to the council that everything is fine, we never stopped. Council Collins and I brought forward nearly 10, 10 motions and studies accordingly. And in this judicial review, in this full scope of the review, we want to know as well, what did we do right? Because I can assure you, the council went over and above the call of duty and not, not that we didn't believe staff, but we didn't take their answer um, for granted. We continued pushing forward, asking the right questions, which I did, and also Council Collins and Jackson, and brought forward that information to light. Without those reports, this would never be an issue. I, I get that, Sam, and, and, and when you were on the show a couple of weeks you ago, you, you pointed us out to uh, that YouTube video of that meeting that you had, I guess it was about three, four years ago, where you were questioning, and then your questions were bang on, and the, the concern that I think a lot of people have is they're not sure that staff was giving you all the information they had at that time when you were asking those questions, and, and, and that's, that's not that's not bad on you, that's, that's, that's one of the questions I think that an inquiry would have to answer. Exactly, but then the question becomes, why did the MTO not reveal that information? That's another one it's I'd like to have answered. Because they had the same raw data. They literally the same raw data, yet nobody, the, all the experts that had this raw data, nobody said, oh, my God, the sky's falling. Close down the road. It's dangerous. Nobody. So we need to, everybody, take a step back, have a full, in-depth investigation before all these armchair quarterbacks draw conclusions that are not only misinformed, but dangerously misinformed. Okay, but there is still a concern. Are you, are you telling people that, that, that not to be concerned about the... The concern the, the, is not about the road. The concern is about why this information was withheld by the province and by staff. Was it based on technical opinion or was it based for nefarious reasons? I don't believe it was nefarious. I don't believe the MTO had this raw data and I don't believe anyone on staff had this raw data and believe let's suppress it because uh, we've done something wrong. I think it's a technical language, and every engineer I've spoken to have said it, has said it, that it's based on interpretation. And as you know, even if that raw data was sent out as a press release, nobody would understand it except those engineers and those experts that understand it. There's no direct correlation between that friction report and the road being dangerous. Hence, let's get to the bottom of this thing. Let's have a full public inquiry and not only acknowledge where things may have gone wrong, but we need to acknowledge where things went right. And I can assure you, council did everything right. But if, it's, if there's nothing wrong with the, the pavement itself, Sam, then why are you uh, spending as much money as you are now to repave that whole section? Again, in politics as in life, sometimes perception becomes reality. So although that uh, 
in, in, in staff eyes, inconclusive, and the MP, MTO believes that everything's fine, because you have to understand, the MTO has publicly stated everything's fine, even though they had the same raw data. And you also have to understand that Gary Moore took the same raw data that the MTO had, but filtered it through a higher standard than the MTO. Hence, when it returned back as a conclusion, it returned back because it was filtered through a higher standard as being below, below standard. The MTO used, rather than using a platinum standard that Gary Moore used, the MTO used a bronze standard, and then everything came back fine. So you've got to put this thing in perspective. And when you start to have laymen and armchair engineers out there trying to interpret expert data, raw data, what you do is you misinform people rather than inform And We have an obligation and responsibility to be factual. So everybody needs to wait Wait for the full public inquiry, which we all on council have agreed to. So we don't need a campaign to tell us what we're already doing. We're doing that. Now everybody needs to wait, hold back, road safe, don't speed, and, and make sure that you go even slower when it's wet and everything's fine. But you saw the stats that came out uh, just the other day there. I guess the spectator did some research and got some freedom of information stuff. There are an inordinate number of collisions on that section of road, m- much more so than, than other p- highways and similar roads like that, too. I mean, that, that, that raises some questions. Well, of course it does. But keep in mind, there are millions and millions of cars that have traveled there. And, yes, there have been a number of accidents. Now, keep in mind, there are three variables that need to be taken into account. The geometry of the road. Because of the creek, the, the road, we didn't go right through the creek itself because environmentally that would not have been sound. So the geometry of the road makes the road somewhat tricky. In combination, when it's wet and people are speeding and or human behavior, that's what's contributing. The vast majority of the accidents or collisions were contributing to that. So over 50% was related to human uh, behavior. Now, when you deduce it down, yes, there are those that are still questionable why, but there's nothing conclusive to say that it's friction or anything else. One thing that is conclusive is the human behavior component, whether they be impaired, whether they're speeding, and all those other aspects. The, the mystery collisions, those that people don't understand what the variables are, those are the ones we need to pinpoint in a public inquiry. But I can assure you there's no engineer that will tell you that there's a direct correlation between any of those accidents and the friction. And that's the point, is that all the engineers that saw that, all that would have triggered was additional studies to determine. Because at any given rate, one study in itself is not sufficient enough to provide a tangible conclusion. You need many studies. So again, we're talking about the science of this. And the science of this is not something that should be debated publicly. We should leave the experts to, to try to instruct us on what we should be debating on that on that technical front. And we have all these armchair engineers out there drawing conclusions that are really dangerously misinformed. Yeah, but I, I understand, and you can always twist statistics around. I mean, we've both been in the business long enough to know that that can happen. It's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, and I understand that half of those uh, may, in fact, those collisions may have been caused by human mistakes, human error, uh, human frailties, any number of different things. But that also means that half of them weren't. And, and, and in that one particular section of the road, it begs the question, is there something the matter with the design of the road or with the way the road was constructed? And I think that's a legitimate question. And all the, all the experts are saying right now, because the last report that occurred, said it's safe, that there's no problem right now. But to, to, to side on the air of caution, we're repaving we're, we're it. Of course, we want to try to bring it even higher. But again, no, the latest study 
all of the studies have never said conclusively that the direction between this friction, friction report is only one variable out of many safety measures that you need to incorporate on, on these studies. When counsel said to staff, we're not satisfied with you telling us that things are inconclusive and or fine, go further. Let's inc- incorporate some other measures. Let's have some capital expenses. Let's look at these issues. Now, we leave it up to the experts to do that. The experts are telling us, if, Bill, if the road was unsafe with the present friction, the road would not be open. We would sh- have shut down the road. Now, if everybody uses the road as prescribed, then everything's fine. The question becomes, why are people not using the road as prescribed? But I get that. I understand that. And I understand that's why you've, you've looked at other things, too. There's going to be an increased police presence. We know that. And they're going to come back. And I guess they're, t- they're having some discussions with you about that, about the costing and things of this nature. And those are all great ideas. And, and by the way, I, I subscribe to the reduction in the speed limit down there, too. I think that was a smart idea. Uh, and, and those things are hopefully going to help in this situation. But it raises the question, once again, that if, if the, the pavement, the asphalt is safe, then why are we paving it then? Is, if it's just because you know, people are complaining about it, that's an awful lot of money to spend just for perception. Well, welcome to the world of politics, though. And that's the reality. <laughs> we're going to spend, six, we're gonna spend $6 million in an inquiry, and some people believe that, especially engineers, will say that that's a waste of money. But we're going to do that because we're committed to, to, to ensuring that people have trust in our bureaucracy. And at this present time, this is a staff of bureaucracy issue. And yes, I'm willing to spend that $6 million because we need people to trust the reports that are generated by, um, by our staff and what's, what's revealed publicly. So, so again, do we need to spend that $6 million for technical reasons? I don't think so. Do we need to spend it for political reasons to have people in trust in our bureaucracy? I do indeed. And that's why it might not be worth it technically, but it's definitely going to be worth it from a public um, uh, perception standpoint and the trust people need to have in their governing body and bureaucracy. Sam, I appreciate the time and uh, the explanation today. Thanks so much for this. My pleasure, and take care. You betcha. Sam Rula, counselor for Ward 4, of course, uh, and uh, his take on what's going on with Red Hill. Uh, and then, by the way, if we go by that 30-day uh, time frame that the council said that we, I guess in the next week or two, they're going to get some information back from staff and see what next steps and how they're going to go about with this inquiry. Lots more to talk about on this file, you can bet. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Fascinating day in Washington. I know we've been focusing an awful lot about what's going on in uh, in Ottawa, of course, with the uh, inquiry into the uh, Lavalin affair. But uh, Washington is uh, starting to heat up once again. With, uh, well, every passing day, I guess, the concern that the Mueller report may be coming out rather shortly and how that's going to be dealt with. But more importantly, uh, there was a conviction and finally a a sentencing yesterday. Paul Manafort, who is uh, the campaign chair, was the campaign chair for the Donald Trump campaign, is going to jail uh, for a number of different offenses. Uh, But uh, the sentence itself... Uh, surprised an awful lot of people. Joining us to talk about this is Elliot Tepper, a Professor Emeritus of uh, Political Science at Carleton University. Elliot, thanks so much for the time. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm fine, Bill. Good. Right off the top, were you surprised by the sentence yesterday? The uh, reason people are surprised is that this is a part of the Mueller investigation not relating, not relating, as everybody is emphasizing, uh, to Trump himself, but to wrongdoing by Manafort, who was the campaign uh, co-chair uh, for a while, and who did deliver, finally, the, the votes necessary at the convention, which was his job, to put uh, Trump into official nomination. Mm-hmm. The reason people are surprised is that the Mueller investigation had uh, spent a lot of time on Manafort, had actually reached a plea deal with him, that uh, 
if you cooperate with us, then the very severe charges against you will will recommend more leniency. But then Manafort violated that. Uh, he lied and reported back to Trump and other things. So the Manafort people wrote a sentencing recommendation that could have led to 19 and a half to 29 years in jail, and instead we got the 47 months. And that's why there's a lot of surprise. Why the why the shorter sentence then? I mean, because like you say, this guy was not a model, uh, uh, you know, applicant. I mean, he, you know, it's this almost the polar opposite of Cohen, uh, who said, "Okay, fine, I'll sing." Uh, he's not doing this. And as a matter of fact, he actually went back on his word on this and has has been rather belligerent about this. Uh, I, I, I'm wondering why the well, the term a lot of people were using, I guess, Elliot, was leniency. Is is that a, yes. a proper characterization? Well, if I were sp- facing four years in jail, I probably wouldn't see it personally as lenient. Uh, Good but point. It is compared to other possibilities, and, and in terms of Cohen, by the way, that is a comparison others are making. Cohen did cooperate fully and extensively and in depth and in detail and got approximately the same amount of time in jail uh, facing him, so a little bit less. But uh, So there, there's that kind of comparison going on. I think uh, a few things are happening. One is that the judge himself has come under a lot of criticism, if you've been watching the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, a lot of people are saying, well, he, he was really not being even-handed in how he, he dealt with the prosecution and the defense, and that he, in fact, was offensive to the, <laughs> to the uh, people who were doing the prosecution. He's got a reputation of being uh, an acerbic wit and somebody that uh, comes up with anomalous anomalous findings, including in this case, that one reason the, the sentence is what it is, is because they uh, otherwise Manafort led an exemplary uh, life. And there's a lot of contestation about that, because Manafort spent a lot of time defending and promoting the interests of some of the worst dictators on earth, mm-hmm. who were really major human rights uh, violators. So the, the, there's a lot of comment about that. Uh, this judge, by the way, is, is really um, special. He's highly educated. He went to Princeton, Harvard, and Oxford, and he apparently lets everybody in the court know that when they come before him. <laughs> <laughs> so the, you know, you want to know who's the smart one in this court? Well, don't smart mouth me, Mr. Lawyer. I'll show you who's who. That's been kind of the attitude, and a number of his, his uh, rulings have been uh, sent up for review later, although they've been upheld. So... We have a controversial judge. That's part of what's going on. Uh, this will be continued. Uh, that aspect of it will be in the press. But also, as others keep pointing out, this is only the first of two trials. That Manafort is by no means out of the woods. He's going to face another and separate trial in a different district, a different jurisdiction in D.C. And he could get an additional 10 years. And he's you know approaching 70. So uh, this is a, a severe possibility. And now the question is, Will those t- whatever the sentence comes out next, will it be run concurrently, as it could be under the next judge's ruling, or added on? So will it stay at the 47 months, or will it go up to whatever the next number of years are added on? Manafort is facing serious uh, jail time, and the question of a pardon now is in the air. Yeah, we've heard those rumors. Well, we've heard them for months, I guess, from uh from the White House, uh, but uh, he had apparently made a statement in the court, I guess, before the sentencing was actually handed down yesterday, 
uh, where he was again rather belligerent, and he did, there was no culpability. He didn't say I'm sorry. I you know none yeah. of that stuff like we've heard from Cohen, which uh, I guess has led a lot of people to uh, assume at this point, uh, Elliot, that he is in line for a pardon. He figures I'm probably not going to go behind bars anyway. Well. Is he auditioning for a pardon? Yeah. Or is he expecting one, or is there already an understanding? And he does draw a very sharp contrast. He's deliberately drawing a contrast between somebody who stays loyal and therefore might expect a pardon compared to Cohen, who's now saying that he not only doesn't expect one but wouldn't accept one, which I, I find very dubious. But, but um, yes, the term of... So under what circumstances can a president give a pardon? That's now coming under closer scrutiny. He, the president has enormous powers, can do pretty well anything he wants in terms of clemency or pardon, but apparently there has to be some cause given. So there's, the legal scholars are, and constitutional scholars are going to be looking at that. What, what all this shows standing back are two things. One is that, once again, people very, very close to the president and to his inner circle, innermost circles, have been found to be of questionable character, if I could put it gently. Uh, instead of surrounding himself with the very best people, as he promised, uh, one after the other after the other, uh, are shown to be somewhat less than that. And uh, the second part of this is, what does this do to Trump himself? And the question is, uh, was there collusion? And the judge, uh, in this case, went out of his way to say this there's no collusion proven in this case, which was odd because nobody was alleging that <laughs> in that particular case. This was about tax fraud. $55 million in income not reported and put offshore and so forth. So there's, so there's the question of how does this affect the Trump presidency, and Trump picked up on that immediately. He, he's just released a tweet saying, see, there's no collusion, all this is a witch hunt. Yeah, but he was. As your point's well taken, though, Elliot. He was never charged with collusion. No, this wasn't a collusion uh, that, case. They weren't looking under that rock at all. This this had to do with Manafort's actions himself. And as you say, it was it was all about the the, the finances, the money, the, the the tax evasion, et cetera, and lying about it on a consistent basis. I don't think anybody ever talked about Russia uh, with in Manafort's situation. Well, but, that's still there because yeah. uh, he was apparently in touch with a. A Russian who now denies today in the Wall Street Journal that he's got anything to do with Russian intelligence, but everybody else is saying he's a conduit to Russian intelligence. And Manafort gave internal party polling data during the campaign to a Russian, this particular one, who in turn is alleged to be connected to the intelligence agencies of Russia. And we know that those agencies interfered in the American election on behalf of Trump. So it's a very tenuous connection in terms of of uh, the legal case, but it is certainly uh, not clearing Manafort from a cloud of suspicion around Trump and the election of Trump. Well, let's segue into into the Mueller report and expectations, uh, and because obviously uh, we know that uh, he's close to the end. At least that's what we're you know being being told anyway. Uh, and there's a great deal of speculation about, first of all, what's going to be in that report and how much of it we're actually going to be allowed to see, uh, which is going to be really up to the to the new attorney general, who, by the way, is already on record as being critical of the Mueller investigation anyway. Yes. Uh, are we, I guess in the first question maybe we need to deal with here, uh, do we have too high an expectation of what's going to come out of this report? Everybody, including the Democratic leadership now and the majority in the House, have been saying, hold your fire, let's not talk about impeachment. Let's wait for Mueller, wait for Mueller. And a lot of the attention in the last uh, couple years has been in Congress. Uh, let's protect the Mueller report. Let's be sure that no matter what, uh, it, this can't be closed down and that we can't have uh, 
what happened under Nixon, the firing of everybody and tried to close down the investigation and so forth. So a lot of attention has been paid to protecting Mueller. And I think, as you and I have discussed for some time uh, in the past, the Mueller report could really be done finally on the back of an envelope saying, we were asked to see if we could find any crimes that would rise to the level of a probable conviction in a court of law, and we didn't. <laughs> and send that in. So at the same time, we know that he's a meticulous, a meticulous uh, prosecutor, and he's got a very powerful posse there, a team that's on the hunt. And we know that a number of, of um, indictments have already happened, the 12 Russians, and a lot of things have been hived off to various courts. Those, by the way, uh, the most prominent is in New York, and that's a federal court, also under, therefore, Attorney General William Barr, uh, potentially uh, having a role to play there. So will we ever find out what Mueller came out with? What should we expect? Uh, when should we expect it? That's, somebody said that it might be this Friday today, uh, tomorrow, today, actually, because it can't be next uh, Friday because next Friday is the Ides of March. <laughs> not about to do. Now, wouldn't that be just perfect? <laughs> yes. So the answer is nobody really knows what Mueller's up to. I think the best line, uh, and I was going to, I see it's, it's been picked up and now it's being quoted again, has been from the fellow who drafted the terms of reference for the Mueller investigation when he was inside the Department of Justice. And he said, when this report comes out, don't expect it to be the beginning of the end. Expect it to be the end of the beginning there's many, many lines of investigation are likely to be uh, opened up by whatever's in that report. Because I've heard so much speculation, and, and you're right, there's always a point of reference. Uh, somebody, one of the guys on MSNBC last night was trying to compare it to the, uh, the Ken Starr report about the Clintons, right. of course. That was about 500 pages, I think. Yes. Uh, and, and he suggested that on the other end of the spectrum, he says the Mueller's report might just be a page long. These, yes. these are the people we've indicted. Yes, and... Uh, uh, here's perhaps some other lines to be pursued, if you so choose, Mr. Attorney. But, but how many people, Elliot, are expecting this to be the smoking gun that says, aha, they finally got Trump? Well, I think that's exactly the what you and I just were talking about. There's been so much expectation put on, uh, on this. Yes, we're going to find it, or no, uh, we won't. It's all a, a hoax anyway. It's a witch hunt, and we know that Donald Trump has spent enormous amount of his capital and his considerable uh, strategic energy into discrediting the report prior to its coming out. So he's already been telling his base, okay, get ready for it. It's about to be released. And when it does come out, there's one word uh, that you need to have here, and it's BS. So that report is BS no matter what it says. It's, so we don't know what's going to come out of it. I think it's highly likely that the litigation, that is the legal implications surrounding the President of the United States, are not going to go away no matter what that report says. It's going to accelerate, and it's going to go on for... Um, uh, this, is, this is an interesting question. Uh, we just got the jobs report today in the U.S., mm -hmm. far lower than anybody thought by a multiple factor. It's 20,000 instead of... Uh, they were expecting many multiples of that in terms of new jobs. Will the economy... Uh, Bill, hold between now and 2020. All of this is about 2020, the next election and the next presidency of the U.S. Will the economy hold, and will all of these multiple, multiple legal avenues uh, of investigation surrounding Trump and his family and possible collusion, the, the House is, uh, is really doing a counterintelligence, 
counterintelligence uh, investigation, not a criminal investigation, and that's going to go on. Will all of this culminate prior to the election? We could be in a situation where, as the Democrats continue to um, not not put up what looks like a pro- an impressive roster, that is, this party looks like it's going to tear itself apart, put up a candidate that Trump could beat, Trump can come in and win, and then be in very severe legal difficulties. That's one scenario. The other element of this, too, is, is the uh, the congressional inquiry that you were just yes. referencing, because that's going to be ongoing. But if the Mueller report does come out, and, it, and if it, it lowers everybody's expectations, does that take the window to their sales, too? No. They, they will, first of all, they'll they'll try to, as, as you've seen in this press, uh, probably they can subpoena, Mueller's just a private citizen. <laughs> they can subpoena him and say, okay, what did you leave out? What did you put in? They can say, you didn't. Remember William Barr, the Attorney General, uh, who basically campaigned for the job by saying, "I don't believe much in the Mueller investigation, and I think it's overreach, and there's clearly no obstruction of justice." And then got appointed to be the Attorney General overseeing the investigation. Now that was just coincidence, though. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Uh-huh. We don't know what his, he may release a, a very short form of the report, but the Democrats are saying we'll just subpoena the entire report. So whatever's in the Mueller report is likely to come out. We just don't know to what degree that can lead to a uh, a high crimes and misdemeanor uh, level of malfeasance that could remove the president from office. Well, that's what I've heard as well. That uh, I mean, even if this is, uh, to use the example we had a few minutes ago, maybe a one or two page report that's uh, not really ripe with details, uh, they can subpoena him, can't they? And just say, we want to yep. see your crib notes. Uh, yeah, this is the report, but I want to see the stuff that you did. I want to see the research. And, and a lot of things may be redacted in it because yeah. it's ongoing investigations, but they can go behind closed doors and have him testify, and then they can still act on whatever he says. As Cohen did yesterday, or day before yes. yesterday, I guess it was. Yes. Uh, and so we don't know what's going on with that, which which uh, kind of tells me that maybe he's not done with this report yet. No, I. You have to stand back. We, we get so caught up in day-to-day things. Yeah. If you stand back, you see the President of the United States is under investigation in so many different ways for so many different types of possible... Um, impeachable or criminal, civil or federal criminal activities, that it would be surprising if he comes out unscathed. Uh, This is not simply a matter of a politics uh, as usual theater, because it's in the court system. It's in the FBI. The FBI will continue its investigation. The Department of Justice is obligated to carry on. So there are so many avenues right now. I think there were 17 open cases a month ago that it's hard to believe something won't come out that will be at least politically damaging severely or perhaps even legally damaging uh, to to Donald Trump and or his family. Well, we'll have to wait and see. Like you say, we're watching Friday afternoons. always seem to be when some of this news breaks, so who knows what's (laughs) going to go on today. Oh, we're not going to run out of news. I don't think so. Elliot, thanks as always. Have a great weekend. Take care. Take care. Elliot Tepper, of course, a professor emeritus at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.